Good morning. Good morning. I thought you were putting your hair up for a second there, Gordon, and I was like, did you, did you, what's going on here? <laughs> It's Friday, June the 12th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Derrick, Dutch News Contributing Editor and Pub Quiz Champion, and joining me as usual are Dutch News Contributing Editor and Neighbourhood Baking Guru, Molly Quell, and Paul Peters, Master Student in Civil Engineering and Peer Saboteur. Did you so, finally win the pub quiz? Yes. Exciting. After like, after like uh, you know, in eight weeks, which is not too bad. I don't hmm. think there's like 15 teams taking part, and some of them are, some of them are pretty damn good, I got to say. Yeah. So, yeah. What what kind of questions do they ask? Is it a, is it a themed pub quiz or is it just? No, uh, it's it's kind of uh, it's random categories. There's always general knowledge, and then there's like um, anything that the quiz master uh, sort of um, is into that week, basically. Yeah. So like, <laughs> there, there was a week on rivers. There was a week on like. Um, uh, cities beginning with uh, the letter C. There's, there's oh wow, all, yeah, all, all kinds of just anything, just any kind of random category. So, yeah, yeah, um, everything is possible in the pub quiz. Yeah, exactly. But uh, but anyway, but yeah, but my team finally uh, uh, yeah um, um, managed to win out of like sixteen online teams. So pretty good. This is like my congratulations. Thing. Thank How you. How do they stop people from cheating? Or is it they just don't. like on your... We're all good people. The yeah. meeste mensen deugen. That's what Rutger Bregman tells us, so... Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> I am annoyed, Gordon, that you did not make my job title related to my new favorite Dutch person that I am obsessed with. And will only your new favorite Dutch person. I only agreed to do this podcast if we did this subject <laughs> as a news item. It's, it's hardly your new favorite Dutch person. This has been your favorite person going back to like... A, Last year's season of Vista Mall, so there's nothing new. There's nothing. There's old news. No, yeah. no, no, no. I didn't watch her. This I didn't know that Nikki. I didn't person. know that she was Dutch. So yeah. <laughs> I only found that out. I think because yeah. of Vista Mall. Is it because of Vista Mall, or is it because of the yeah. Eurovision thing? Because she like no, hosted no, no, no. the like you... online Eurovision thing. No, no, that was only this year, and oh. you knew it before Last that. So, uh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. There so, uh, thanks to Vies de Mol, you know that Nikki Tutorials is Dutch. Dutch. Anyway, she's yeah. also now the uh, UN an ambassador to yes. the United Nations. So, yeah. it's very exciting. Yeah, very exciting news. Yeah, so, yeah. It is. So, please for her. Yeah. But that wasn't your job title, because uh, you, 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 you've been teaching your neighbors how to bake in, in, in the middle of your, your fantastic multitasking lifestyle. As well as drinking smoothies, so you're, you're drinking smoothies I, and teaching people how to bake through the wall. And <laughs> yeah. talking to you guys during this podcast. All at once. Mm. Yeah. This is this is amazing. My next door neighbor wanted to learn how to make bread, so I taught her over the weekend, and she apparently is one of these people who gets extremely <laughs> obsessed with something, and so I showed her on, like, Saturday morning, like, I was making bread, as I usually do, and I showed her, like, sort of how I do it, and then she went home and baked her own bread, and then promptly became, like, obsessed with how fast yeast rises and like was freaking out because it wasn't and i was like you have to like give it some time it's been like 20 minutes and she was like no 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 it grew <laughs> faster the last time so yesterday i took her to my favorite like bakery shop thing and she bought like 60 euros worth of like flour and yeast and like other stuff so she's hmm. on the bread baking train but she doesn't really know what she's doing and i'm not sure if this is just like social contact or if she it doesn't occur to her to like check out Google, but she anytime anything happens, she just like 
texts me. And if I don't respond fast enough, then she just knocks on the front door. Because, of course, she's literally my next-door neighbor. So it's been a very entertaining few days. Yeah. So you're getting some social contact in lockdown, then, which is good. And, uh, Paul, was, um, how are the plans going to blow up Scapening Appear? This seems to be uh, y- y- your personal uh, um, science project at the moment. Well, it depends on, 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 on one person in particular, and that is the <laughs> President of the United yeah. States. Um, because he... Um, Molly, you're gonna need to help me with this, but he—he—he—he he, um, he, he threatens to put some um, some staff of the International Court of Justice on a sort of yeah. blacklist or something like that. No, uh, because um, basically everything you just said was wrong. So let's let's try this again. They, the Secretary of State yesterday announced that they were going to introduce sanctions against International Criminal Court staff, which is not the International oh. Court of Justice. That's yes. the, the genocide court, the world's foremost court on human rights. Um, but yeah, so they had had some dust-ups. I mean, the U.S. has never really liked the criminal court. It's not uh, a member. It's not a party to the Rome Statute that found it. It is a party, and it was never ratified. It's like kind of complicated, but yeah. It's one of the few countries that does not recognize the uh, International Criminal Court, right? Yes. And they had had a bit of a dust-up, I think about a year ago, maybe a bit longer, where they had revoked the visa for the prosecutor for the court to be able to travel to the U.S., which she then just turned around and did anyway, so it was a little unclear to me, like, what happened. But, yeah, so now they're they're claiming that they're going to put in um, economic sanctions and ban people, staff members who are working on the investigation into atrocities committed in Afghanistan, um, which is a case that was moved forward in December of last year, and they... Um, Against with an investigation towards both the Taliban, the Afghanistan government, and like U.S. military operatives who were there during the Iraq War. So, yeah, um, and and the the thing is that the uh, Bush administration um, adopted a law in 2002 which yes. uh, protects Americans from being prosecuted in that court. Yes, and it uh, also in, it, that court that law is called the uh, American Service Members Protection Act, and it includes a clause that uh, says that they will invade The Hague or the Netherlands uh, in the event of an American being prosecuted over there. Yes, that they that the U.S. can take military action to retrieve American citizens who are being held in ICC detention, um, also known as the Invade The Hague Act which is my favorite part of this. And by doing that, I hope that they will destroy the pier in Scheveningen yeah. because it is an absolute monstrosity. Uh, and as we were discussing there, this... So, you know, it's it's possible. It is it is very possible. And uh, as we were discussing this last uh, last night, you also mentioned that perhaps we should tell the Americans that the uh, International Court of Justice is uh, seated in that <laughs> awful building next to the Hague Central Station where the Trade Kamer is going to move. The, yes. um, the, that building you once famously uh, described as a, a Soviet Gaudi, Gaudi building. Yes, I um, said it looks like Gaudi built it during his fascist period, I think. <laughs> during his totalitarian phase. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm a huge fan of this plan already. So yeah. uh, let's, uh, uh, Donald Trump, if you are listening, uh, I endorse your, your plans to invade The Hague. Well, first they have to get their hands on these Americans, which of course is difficult to do because the International Criminal Court has no police force. So they rely on other countries to turn them over. And obviously the U.S. is not going to turn these people over. So if they just don't leave the U.S., yeah. there's no way for the yeah. ICC yeah. to get their hands on them. Um, I just hope that one of these uh, one of these Americans that are, that, are, that are going to need to stand in trial will use a wrong um, uh, trash can or something uh, that they will be arrested by a BOA. And uh, that, that way we can, we, can, we can bring them. Then they'll get like a, a fine for 90 euros and they'll be deported. 
um, for, for non-payment of fine. I was also really, uh, slightly concerned that this was announced on the same day as the first barrel of new herring <laughs> landed in Scavening. Did somebody check it to make sure it hadn't been like, loaded yeah. rigged with explosives? Like a, by, a, tr- a Trojan. By Trump. It, this could be a Trojan uh, herring. Uh, uh, yep, a Trojan herring. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bring it in, bring it in. So I I think that's good advice. Don't eat any herring this season. It's disgusting anyway. Yeah. And very likely, you know, contains CIA agents and nobody wants that. Yeah, even if it's not exploded with explosives, it could still well get stuck in your throat. Yeah. Because they had they had the ceremonial um, uh, delivery of this year's uh, first barrel of herring, but it, it wasn't usually it's auctioned. But for this year, for the first time in I think thirty five years, it didn't go to auction because of coronavirus, and they couldn't right. hold the auction, so they donated it to, um, to to like healthcare workers. Do we see this? Uh, I did see this. They, 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 yeah. They, yeah, they donated the first barrel of herring. So there's like one of these big press protocols, and these guys uh, doing that classic herring eating pose, which I think you, you've got a picture of Niels doing. Um, in, in, they got a picture of people doing that classic herring pose where you hold the herring uh, above your head and then tilt your head and then sort of drop it straight down your throat and presume you suffocate <laughs> on it. Imagine so. being waterboarded by herring water. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is all really interesting in terms of geopolitics, but basically, am I safe to go on the scavening a wheel this summer with my kids? That's what I, I also learned that um, during the uh, during World War II, um, German soldiers never set foot on Schiemonnik Oog. So apparently, if 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 people invade the Netherlands, they will never go to Schiemonnik Oog. So I assume you will be safe over there. Yeah. Yeah. What they did was well, they they, they did invade Schiemonnik Oog, but after the war, they fled to Schiemonnik Oog oh, yeah, and right. held up there. They, they, they held up there for about for about for about a month, <laughs> and in the end, um, one of the um uh, the Canadian ambassador had to go over in disguise and 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 negotiate uh, the return of these Germans to the Dutch mainland. Um, <laughs> I completely yeah. misunderstood this story then, but this is even better. <laughs> no, it's a, no, yeah, no, Schiemonnikov was, was invaded by the Germans, but only right at the end of the war. <laughs> a group of about a dozen German soldiers basically just got a boat over to Schiefening because uh, to, to get capture and then basically tried to kind of stake out on the island and wait to be rescued by, you know, by the Nazi army, which of course no longer no, existed right. because uh, the German Germany had surrendered. Yeah. So they were kind of stuck. So Schiemonnikov was like the last bastion of Nazi rule. <laughs> but this is like the, um, the Japanese military guys who were like hiding in all these like tiny islands and refused to come out. And there's like this story about how they like, they were trying, they knew that this group of Japanese soldiers was there and they, the Japanese soldiers were convinced that like this was just propaganda from oh, people yeah. who were trying to convince yeah. them to come out of the, the woods or the jungle or whatever. And so they like went and got their old like commanders. This was like, 50 years after the war ended or like 30 years after the war. It was a long time. They went and got their like old commanders to come and like tell them that like, no, no, the war is, yeah. is really over. The, you should like come out the, of the They, they had now. to bring the, the, the yeah. emperor, the Japanese emperor to that island to convince them that, that the imperial yeah. army was defeated. Yeah, it's totally yeah. crazy. Yeah, it's totally crazy. So that was kind of wartime OPEF. Uh, what about uh, this week's uh, OPEF of the week, Paul? <laughs> yeah, well, it could as well be a wartime OPEF, this OPEF that we have here. Uh, because after farmers, construction workers, school children, and Black Lives Matter demonstrators, the Malieveld in The Hague was once again the scene of a protest, but this time by fairground owners. Um, they find it unfair. Do you see what I did there? Yes, um, I did. Yes. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. Fi- <laughs> it's an unfair funfair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm. They find it unfair that theme parks and zoos have been allowed to reopen while the ban on carnivals continues until September 1st. Under the slogan, one and a half meter near the edge, an estimated 150 attractions were on their way to The Hague, but a dramatic scene unfolded when the police blocked the A12 motorway, preventing a large number of fairground owners from entering the city. 
city. So the Hague was invaded this week then, but not yes. by the Americans, but by, exactly. by, by the Carnies. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. But not all of them, because uh, some of them were, <laughs> were stuck on the motorway. Yeah. Um, after a long and tense standoff on the motorway between the police and the angry fair people, it was agreed they would be allowed to park their vehicles at Ado Stadium at the edge of the city instead, but not before one of the carnival people put a stuffed animal in front of three lines of police in full riot gear, and it, it was an amazing photo. The uh, photo is which great. I sent to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, meanwhile, in the city center, uh, several fairground owners did manage to reach the Malifeld, where no one less than Thierry Baudet was there to greet them. <laughs> the Kermes is part of Dutch culture, and it is of the utmost importance the ban on carnivals should be lifted, Baudet said in Dutch and not in Latin this time, uh, and, and also uh, before he urged everyone gathered to become a member of his party. Uh, Health Minister Hugo de Jonge promised the fairground owners uh, he will reconsider the ban and that he is prepared to take a look at what is possible. So right. the fairground owners had some success uh, in their invasion of the Hague. Yeah, so it wasn't all for nothing. When do we think the last time was that Cherry Baudet went to a caravan? Never. I'm also convinced that he repulses every notion, everything that has to do with the cameras, and that he is only there for opportunistic reasons, of course. Surely not. But no. I'm opportunistic. I can't believe you just no, use those two exactly. words in the same sentence. That's an impossible um, combination. <laughs> yeah. Um, was he also handing out his uh, his free newspapers at this, um, this protest? Um, I'm I'm sure he had some staff that were doing that, but I hadn't I haven't seen it. He did. Um, how do you call that attraction where you have to um, slam a hammer onto something? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I can't remember. Is it, you have I sort no of what about the hammer and it hits the bell at the top, right? Yeah, like exactly. Kop van Jut, it's called in Dutch, but I'm not sure right. what the English word is. Uh, okay. There were some great photos of him, um, you know, lifting the hammer. Um, yeah. And uh, it, that, all, that immediately turned into a meme because, of course, you can put some text on the hammer yeah. and on yeah. to the thing that he's going to slam. So someone's, yeah. someone made a meme with um, a boreal gelul, um, uh, you know, referring to his famous speech that he did mm -hmm. after the provincial elections. And then uh, 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 at the, the thing where he has to hit uh, every chance of uh, ever forming a government, yeah. for example, or something like that. So it, 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 uh, we got some great memes out of it, though. So yeah. that's, that's at least that's positive. That's true. Why does Baudet argue that uh, like sort of do, going on uh, some mini roller coasters and uh, th and, and throwing um, uh, sort of soft balls at piles of cans is particularly Dutch? I mean, you get this. This is one of those things. It's everywhere. It's yeah. universal, isn't it? It's, uh, I've never heard of that being a uniquely Dutch thing. Yeah, and, and most of the fairground owners that uh, that you see on a uh, on a fairground in, in in the Netherlands come either from Belgium or from Germany. Yeah, Germany exactly. is really the the, the most important uh, country for that. So um, yeah. yeah, I don't know exactly. I only think the the Oliebolle part is 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 completely Dutch. Yeah, you know, and you have yeah. a stand with Oliebolle. That's the only thing yeah. that's fully Dutch. And also properties as well. Poffertjes is a big thing. Poffertjes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And churros, yeah. which is Spanish, yeah. but yeah, that's, uh, that's yeah. a different story. Actually, the, the Kermis is, is, is the prime example of what the European Union can achieve because right. it brings... Yeah. German tour operators selling Spanish food to Dutch people. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yeah. In this week's news, we'll tell you about more testing on coronavirus, testing times ahead for the economy, and a test of nerves for Amsterdam's mayor, Famke Halsema. And stay listening for a very long story about a notorious Dutch tongue twister. The number of people being tested for coronavirus has gone up dramatically since the capacity was increased at the start of the month. 
In the first week of June, more than 58,000 people were tested, which is 75% more than the final week of May, and by Thursday, 100,000 people have called the new testing hotline. The government has scaled up testing so the disease can be tracked as people return to work and cafes, cinemas and museums gradually reopen. Anyone who has symptoms such as a cold, a cough or high temperature can now book a test. In most places, the test can be carried out on the same day or the next day and 96% of people have got their results within 24 hours. The increased testing has also meant a rise in the number of positive cases, but not as many as were expected. In the seven days to June the 9th, 1,256 new infections were recorded by the RFEM. That's an increase of 17% from the week before, but fewer than 2% of all tests uh, are now coming back uh, positive for the disease. So Gordon, why haven't we had universal testing up until now? Yeah, that is a kind of a hot-button issue, and it's um, becoming increasingly uh, clear that uh, maybe we should have had. Uh, the AFEM has always maintained that there weren't enough tests back in March when the virus first started to spread rapidly, so it restricted them to frontline workers like hospital staff. Uh, people working in care facilities like and nursing homes then couldn't be tested, and of course we know that's where some of the um, uh, biggest clusters of infections uh, have uh, have happened. But Newsio did a survey recently of all 55 testing laboratories, and several of them said they they had spare capacity in March and April that they could have used. Some labs only used 50% of their available tests. Peter Hoppener from the Brabant-based care organisation Fevent, who's been critical of the government uh, on this issue, said it was known at the time that the labs had tests available and infections in nursing homes was an issue. Uh, I should note as well that Health Minister Hugo de Jong banned nursing home visits way back on March the 20th, so it's clear that there was uh, an issue even back then. These two issues, plus deliberately not testing nursing home staff, is a scandal, said Hoppener. Labour Party leader Lodovic Usser has called for ministers to explain why so few health sector workers were tested in the early months of the epidemic, but de Jonge has said it was too early to conclude that the low testing rate had led to unnecessary deaths. Yeah, that's interesting, but uh, um, assuming that there are a limited number of tests available and in hindsight we know that the uh, epidemic lasted a month or month or so or one and a half months well, the, what, yeah the peak of the epidemic was kind of in early april wasn't it so it's about uh, a month six weeks after we got the first cases exactly but what if this peak lasted longer than uh, we we know now that it did uh, then we still needed to have these tests available for the for the frontline workers so yeah, in, in hindsight, I think it's easy to say that there were uh, plenty of tests available for everyone. But y yeah, given that uh, when that decision was made, we didn't know anything about how the disease would develop. Um, uh, I don't think uh, it's fair to say that uh, that they did a bad job uh, with this. But yeah. I think I think the questions here to be asked are, you know, if, um, did, how much extra capacity did the labs have, and you know what was what was done about about you know was this communicated through to the RFEM? Did the RFEM were they too slow to change their their policy? Because we knew from like the end of March that uh, there was a lot of corona going around the nursing homes, yet we weren't testing nursing home staff. We also knew that nursing home that the staff were one of the biggest um, sources of infection for the patients because I mean I, I remember I think um, at some point in April uh, a doctor interviewed a newsier saying that nearly all the people who um, who, who tested positive were healthcare workers so mm. we knew this was an issue so the question is uh, what what information did they have and could they have um, uh, expanded the testing um, earlier given they knew that they'd had um, extra capacity not just you know, um, uh, from day to day, but uh, over a period of weeks, so the labs were producing more tests than were actually being used. Yeah, they had exactly. these stop. They had these stockpiles that they were building up. 
um, and that they were and they weren't using. So yeah, yeah. That, that, I think it's one of those things. We're increasingly getting into the details now of exactly um, what mistakes were made in the early early weeks of the outbreak. Because it's clear there were mistakes made, and it spread very rapidly. Um, you know, the lockdown came in maybe a week or two, or certainly a week later than it uh, that it could have been imposed. And similarly, uh, in, the, in in the very early stages, they were trying to um, test every case to try and contain the virus. But there's a but um, at a certain point, um, once it started to spread rapidly through Brabant, they abandoned that and uh, kind of concentrated on just testing the, the, uh, the frontline healthcare workers. But then, you know, were they too slow to um, respond to developments in the disease um, in places outside of hospitals like nursing homes? And, and, and ultimately, the, the big question arising out of all this is, could they have saved lives if they'd acted faster? And I think mm. these are, you know, um, legitimate questions that we're going to um, hear a lot more of in the, in the next few months. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure yeah. there will be a commission yeah, um, there's always a commission. There's always a commission. Always uh, a commission. Johan Wemkes will chair it. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Wopke Joustra, is that a name? <laughs> no, um, I don't know. Joustra, I mean. Yeah, exactly. The, the guy did the MH17 else. safety report. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is there news on the vaccine front? Uh, there is some hopeful, uh, cautiously hopeful news on the vaccine front. Uh, human trials of a vaccine that's being developed in Leiden have been brought forward to July after some positive early results. Janssen Biologics, which is owned by the American pharmaceutical giant Johnson & Johnson, had originally scheduled the trial phase for September. Uh, the trials are taking place in Belgium and the US uh, to get around the strict regulations surrounding uh, medical testing in the Netherlands. Some 1,045 healthy adults aged between 18 and 45 will take place in a randomised double-blind study to test the vaccine and see if they develop antibodies to coronavirus. The company is already planning to produce a billion doses in 2021 if the trials are successful, but hmm. of course that's a big if. So that's uh, really hopeful news. Um, so uh, we all know Kuifje, right? Tintin. Yes. Um, yes. One of the main characters there, or one of the main side characters, are Janssen and Janssen in Dutch. Yes. And yeah. the, 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 the two... Thompson and Thompson in the English Thompson and edition. Thompson. Yeah. yeah. Every time I, I see the name Johnson and Johnson, I immediately <laughs> picture Janssen and Janssen in my head. And uh, it completely distracts me from the fact that Johnson and Johnson is, in fact, this enormous pharmaceutical <laughs> giant. But it's uh, sort of... Uh, um, uh, you just uh, see two guys in bowler hats. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, I should not be uh, fooled by that. Um, but yeah, it's really positive news um, uh, 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 in terms of the vaccines. But I, I mean, I've seen so many stories uh, from around the world that they are um, developing uh, a vaccine and that they are uh, very successful in the early stages. So yeah. it's, it, we're going to have to wait and see if this is actually going to happen. But yeah, hopefully they will. Yeah, there's various companies uh, trialing vaccines as well. So you know, you hope that one of them will come out successfully. Another, there was a vaccine trial in Oxford, which was set up by the fact that um, they don't have enough coronavirus cases now in the UK, which surprised me to be honest, given how oh, many wow. there, there are. Yeah. They said they said that they're running out of patients. They actually said, I think I saw somebody from the company quoted saying, we, "We we kind of, in a way, like the disease to sort of stick around for a month or two, because otherwise we won't have enough uh, enough guinea pigs for our for our vaccine." <laughs> that's uh, <laughs> yikes! That's disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so who knows? So, 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 so somebody now uh, will will will, will um, uh, devise some kind of big pharma conspiracy here about the yeah. virus. <laughs> exactly. We just need more five G. If Photophone yeah. just turns <laughs> on five G, then then everything will be yeah. fine. Yeah, then there'll be enough Corona patients. Exactly. 
While the pandemic seems to be mostly under control, the economic havoc it has brought is, well, not. The Dutch Central Bank said on Monday that the Dutch economy will contract by 6.4% this year, twice as much as during the credit crisis of 2009. And while the recovery will start in the second half of the year, economic growth is predicted to hit just 2.9% next year and 2.4% in 2022. Rabobank economists had a slightly more positive prediction. They said on Monday that the economy will contract by only 5.7% this year. Oh, that's they nothing. Also pre- yeah, nothing. Hmm. They also uh, predict unemployment will rise from 3% to 7% by the end of the year. Um, unsurprisingly, the biggest negative impact of the coronavirus will be felt in the second half of the year as consumers, companies, and export destinations reduce their spending drastically. So uh, is that because no one is going on holiday? Oh yeah, nobody's going on holiday. An Ein van Dach poll showed that most people in the Netherlands either have no plans to go away or say they will uh, stay in the country if they are going on holiday. 50% said they would have no holiday. And of those who did plan to take a vacation, 42% said they would remain in the Netherlands. So let's all pour one out for the poor Hunabena in Drenthe because they're going to be inundated with Dutch tourists <laughs> this year. I already saw um, some advertisements of uh, hotels in the Netherlands that will... Um, that are offering um, all-inclusive holidays. So instead oh, yeah, of going the to Dutch love those. Yeah, yeah, the Dutch love those. So instead of going to the um, uh, Spanish beaches or Turkey, I believe yeah. is, is even more famous for that. You can just go to to Katwijk aan Zee or some somewhere like that. Yeah, and then yeah, who just, doesn't uh, want to do that? Yeah, and then just yeah, do who the, doesn't want to go to Katwijk aan Zee? No, yeah. but uh, well, if if it's an all-inclusive resort, then you know the only thing that matters is the food. So. Perhaps that's a good substitute for yeah. Turkey. I'm not sure. Well, I was just going to say, are they still going to take their own tinned potatoes with them when they go on? When they go no, no, no. If if you have, if you do an all-inclusive holiday, then you don't have all to right. do anything of that. Yeah. And because uh, all the food is already included in the price, you will just spend your uh, entire two weeks of holiday stuffing yourself. Um, yeah. And in with, a way, with, that's with Dutch, the, Dutch in food. a way that's the same. That's the same thing uh, as bringing your own food, right? You just yeah. Um, you just stuff yourself, and then the next two months you don't have to eat anymore. More. Yeah. Um, so some of this disaster that Paul just outlined is uh, over the confusion of rules for social distancing on planes. MPs have asked Health Minister Hugo de Jonga to drop guidelines, but the RIVM said this week that they don't have any advice on flying yet. Jaap van Diesel, the head of infectious disease at the Dutch Public Health Institute, did say that there was a low chance of transmission while flying, but it does not seem that people are going to be rushing to get back into the skies. I uh, also heard that um, uh, touring operators will uh, illegally transport more people than they are allowed. So instead of uh, a limited number of 30, I believe, they are just going to do 50. And and if they're going to be fined, then uh, they're just just going to pay the fine. They just rather uh, transport more people than than, than, uh, not paying fines, apparently. Yeah, I guess when you work out the mass, if you you take twice as many people, then you probably covered the cost of the fine and and then some. So... Mm. You'll just kind of take that on the chin, but I guess all this doesn't bode all that well for the um, the economy of uh, the French campsites. Um, then, uh, no. In fact, the Rabobank report predicts that the French, Italian, and British economies will shrink by at least ten percent this year, and the Spanish economy will shrink by as much as thirteen percent. So, are you two planning on going on vacation? No, not really, actually. No. 
Well, I'm kind of hoping to get to visit my family in the UK, but that's all been scuppered by the um, UK's government's total incompetence on coronavirus, so we're banned yeah. from going there at the moment. Well, if we go, we have to spend two weeks in quarantine when we're there, and when we come home, we have to spend another two weeks in quarantine, so we basically uh. have to spend the whole of the rest of the year in quarantine. <laughs> well, if you if you can spend your quarantine at an all-inclusive resort in Katwijk, would you be willing to do it? Oh, yes. It? Well, then I would definitely go for it, yeah. Oh. So, um, yeah. Maybe if any uh, tour operators want to chuck in a two-week-long press trip, um, then you know we, we can we can do a deal. Amsterdam Mayor Femke Halsema can stay in office. The city council decided after a very long and very intense debate on Wednesday. Halsema was under fire for her handling of an anti-police brutality and racism demonstration last week. City officials and police had estimated 300 demonstrators would come to Dam Square, but instead the crowd grew to 10,000, making it impossible for them to maintain the 1.5 meter distance rules. Halsema decided not to enforce the social distancing rules, fearing that an intervention could lead to an escalation. Uh, Halsema said in the debate she understood that the images of a packed Dam Square could be painful for anyone who had been following the corona rules in the past months. She acknowledged the safety liaison commission had made an enormous error when they estimated the crowd size, but she refused to give an apology. The safety liaison commission consists of the mayor, the police and the public prosecutors and is in Dutch called the driehoek. And you have all sorts of driehoeks. As I was trying to sort of uh, look for a translation for this, I just go to the Wikipedia page of the driehoek and then try to go to the English language uh, page but there wasn't one available but apparently we have a local driehoek we have a mini driehoek we have a national driehoek (laughs) we have a regional driehoek we have all sorts of driehoeks apparently in this country um is there a Bermuda driehoek god you guys just love a useless committee (laughs) it's your favorite thing ever (laughs) we do yeah this uh committee is responsible for public safety and order and uh, meet on a regular basis in and also in the event of an emergency so uh, that's why um uh the the driehoek met uh uh uh, during this protest uh two independent inquiries will have to find out uh how this uh uh, estimation could have gone so wrong uh, and it is a it is expected, Halsma said, that many people called on each other to come to join the demonstration using Instagram and Snapchat, which the police are less able to monitor than social media such as Twitter and Facebook. So it's um, a handy, handy tip for any terrorists out there. Exactly, yeah, use Snapchat. Yeah. Um, yeah, also Instagram. Halsema also refused to apologize for not breaking up the demonstrations. She told the council that de-escalation was her main focus and that she still thinks it was the right decision. She did express regret not to have used soft measures, for example, to simply ask people to leave the square. Uh, Halsema said this was a lesson for the future. Yeah, so um, was her position ever really in danger, though? No, not really, because the left-wing uh, coalition parties in the city council already uh, said in the days before the debates that they were not planning to send her home, and they didn't a- also didn't ask any well, really tough questions during the debate. Uh, on the other hand, right-wing parties such as Forum for Democracy and VVD were very critical. Uh, they bombarded the mayor with questions and at some point demanded an apology, to which Halsma bluntly replied, no, you won't get one. Um, <laughs> and at the end of the debate, uh, these two parties issued a motion of no confidence uh, as they had announced the day after the protest but this was voted down as expected and Halsma also gave a snarky comments they said perhaps you should have just waited for the facts before you uh, announced the motion of no confidence 
Yeah, so a certain amount of uh, showboating. Exactly. I was interested that Fefe Day put this motion forward, uh, given that sort of uh, FFA, you know, four of Democratie were obviously quite predictably the most vocal critics of Halsema in the um, back of this and saying she should resign, it was a disaster, and that she was, you know, kind of, um, it, was, it was all kind of a big, you know, lefty stitch up. But the, it was interesting that Fefe Day, the kind of mainstream right wing party, kind of hitched onto this and actually made the running with uh, calling for her resignation. I was, I was also uh, surprised by that, but perhaps yeah. it was because. Because a, a motion of Fefe Day is more likely to, to, to be supported by other parties than a motion by Forum for Democracy. Perhaps that was uh, one of the reasons why they did it this way. I'm not entirely sure, though. But the motion was only supported by Fefe Day and Fefe Day, so it wasn't uh, effective in the end. Yeah, so maybe not a good tactical move by Fefe Day, because sort of, they've now kind of pigeonholed themselves along with Fefe Day as, um, you know, mm-hmm. as, as that kind of um, you know, right-wing flank. True. Yeah, indeed, you're right. Yeah. yeah, it feels as if this was kind of just a massive misjudgment, and um, you know, the, 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 this was the first of these um, Black Lives Matter protests in the Netherlands. So, uh, the, the, the the lessons seem to be learnt from future protests, like in Rotterdam, and um, was there not one the other day in um, was it Amstelveen? Not, where there's yeah. a huge number of people gathered together, but they they, they kind of anticipated that, and they had um, they had measures in place to kind of disperse people so that they kept a meter and a half apart. Um, yeah, in the uh, the other Black Life Dem- uh, Black Life Matters demonstrators, they uh, dem- the other Black Life demonstrations, they really tried to do an effort not to sort of um, uh, uh, give an opportunity to opposers to complain about the one and a half meter distance rules. So indeed, we saw uh, demonstrations at the Malifeld, for example, where everyone kept one and a half meters apart. We also saw one in Amsterdam Zuidoost in a huge park over there where everyone kept one and a half meters distance and also yeah. behind Utrecht Central Station, I believe. So, um, yeah, we've seen a lot of demonstrations where they uh, sort of learned the lesson from, from Dom Square and, and um, yeah, uh, kept that distance to each other. If you appreciate our efforts to make sense of the Dutch political circus or just enjoy riding the roller coaster of Ophef, why not sponsor us on Patreon? For as little as one US dollar, you can keep this podcast going and maintain our stocks of coffee, stove waffles, and dog food. All our new patrons get a shout out on the podcast, and as a special favour, we'll let you ask us a question about anything at all. Uh, in fact, that's one of the highlights of uh, the podcast. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, it truly is. Yeah, it really is. Uh, and as we mentioned before, if you donate seventy-five dollars, Molly will have to sit through an entire football match by herself, which will be extra grueling. Now she can't have Truby as a mascot, as we'll discuss later. Couldn't she just visit a Feyenoord match? Then at least she uh, she is able to see Dick Lawyer. That's true. Yeah, we could do that. We could arrange that maybe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as like personal guest of Dick Lawyer. I mean, you guys have not. There's been no specification as to which football match I will be watching, so I'm not willing to set any <laughs> parameters on this. I think the parameters will be set by the donor. Actually, so. Oh yeah, exactly. Within reason, sure. Yeah, but why spend 75 bucks when you can spend 100 bucks, which is a much better <laughs> deal, I think. <laughs> yeah, because 100 bucks gets you what, Molly? Uh, as I understand it, Paul will vote for the Socialist Party in an election, so you can buy a vote for a 100 euros. That's a pretty good deal. I'm the Richard de Moss of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you really are. If you want to join our limited number of podcast patrons, head over to patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl. The trial of four men charged with 298 counts of murder for their alleged role in the downing of the Malaysian Airlines plane in July 2014 resumed on Monday, with the public prosecutors presenting an overview of the evidence and the defense arguing that it had been hindered by corona restrictions. Three Russian men, Igor Gerkin, Sergei Dubinsky, and Olog 
Pulatov and one Ukrainian man, Leonor Kurchenko, were charged with supplying the Buk missile that prosecutors say shot down Malaysian Airlines Flight 17 or MH17 over eastern Ukraine. None of them were present in the courtroom. Only Pilatov is being represented by lawyers. Gherkin, Dubinsky, and Chichenko are being tried in absentia. The three-person public prosecution team described other possible scenarios that could have led to the disaster and why all scenarios, other than that the passenger jet had been shot down by the Buk missile from a rebel-held position, had been ruled out. They also described the forensic investigation into the wreckage that was undertaken by multiple countries. So was it just uh, three days of evidence? Not entirely. On Monday morning and Wednesday afternoon, the defense had some opportunity to respond to issues. They are unhappy because they've been unable to meet with their client who is still in Russia, and due to corona restrictions, they've been unable to travel. There, so they're pushing for more time. The prosecution seemed pretty unsympathetic to this, saying Pilatov had known for a year that he had been charged and long distance methods of communication were possible. There was also a long discussion on Wednesday about whether or not the four men would qualify for so called combatant immunity, a somewhat complicated international humanitarian law concept which prevents members of the armed forces from being charged during legitimate conflicts. Prosecution obviously thinks that they uh, do not qualify for this. Should Pulatov raise that defense, he would basically be arguing that he was a member of the official armed Russian forces during the time of the attack, which contradicts the Russia party line, which is that they weren't involved in Crimea, that it was independent separatists who rose up against Ukraine. Yeah, so that's kind of awkward. Yeah, going to be real awkward. Yeah. Well, we'll see. So, but the hearings have uh, kind of uh, wrapped up for now. Yeah, after a bunch of squabbling over the schedule between the prosecution and the defense, the judge sort of shut it all down and adjourned to June 22nd, um, which is when we will hear more about what the defense has to say. Right, okay. I'm curious about this point that um, the defense say the coronavirus restrictions have hampered them, given that they're at already at an enormous distance from their clients. Well, they were supposed to travel there um, in this in this intervening period, and they can't travel because the borders are shut. Um, so they're saying, well, we can't meet with our client, which, I mean, is fair, but also, like, you sh- maybe you should have done this before, I guess. I don't know. I mean, the prosecution seemed extremely unsympathetic. I think it's pretty unlikely that the judges are going to give them any more time. I mean, MH17 was downed in 2014. I mean, people have already waited almost six years for some sort of movement on this. I mean, the schedule is it's going to be a very long trial to begin with. So I don't think that we're going to see an extension because of this. But yeah, you never know. In the news, we've all been hotly anticipating since lockdown began. The Canfe Bay has published its plan to restart the professional football leagues. Did I hear a cheer there? Yay. I'm sorry, what? I stopped paying attention. We're doing sports. But you need to pay attention because if we get this donation in, then uh, you know this might um, uh, be significant for you. The phased re-entry from September means normal service won't be resumed until January at the earliest, if the virus stays under control. The first half of the season, we played in closed stadiums with a maximum of 300 people. That includes the teams, the reserve team players, the coaches, the medical staff, the referees and the media, and one person to do the drug testing. There'll also only be four ball boys or ball girls allowed. That means one uh, covers each side of the pitch and they'll have to do an awful lot of running. Yeah, exactly. So that'll keep them fit. And uh, they'll also have to disinfect the ball every time they throw it back into play. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> oh, my God. But I thought in soccer you're not allowed to touch the ball with your hands anyway so like are they implying that if they don't disinfect the ball that like soccer athletes are like licking their feet and that's how they're getting coronavirus like what is the justification for this well as first of all the goalkeeper can touch the ball oh yeah but they wear gloves right but, but, yeah but you have throw-ins yeah um, okay fair to... enough and also you can have the ball in your face that's it's it's allowed to have it in your face so 
Perhaps oh. that's the danger okay. that over there. They're I'm worried about sure. ball-to-face transmission. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and you do kind of pick up the ball when play stopped and you start again for a free kick. So there's yeah, And the referee okay. touches the ball and so on. Uh, mascots are going to be banned. So no big, cuddly, uh, oversized uh, uh, teddy bears or, and, and, or that kind of thing. Uh, the teams won't be allowed to run out alongside each other at the start of the game. And there'll be a time limit of 40 minutes in the changing rooms. Is the go-ahead Eagles Eagle also banned? I guess they, they are, yeah. Can Eagles transmit Corona? I thought it was only Mink. <laughs> yeah, yeah I don't know if any club has got a Mink as a mascot. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that would be a definitely problem, out. I think. Yeah, probably someone in Brabant has. Maybe Ekezi <laughs> yeah, exactly. Baldeck. FCA Elmond. The plans are due to be finalised with the health ministry at the end of June, after which they'll have the go-ahead. And I assume everybody is very happy with the new arrangements. Well, they're happy that they get to play again, but um, Ajax's CEO, Edwin van der Sar, has uh, suggested the fixture list should be rearranged so that the big matches are all played in the second half of the season. Uh, things like Ajax versus Payer Feyenoord, or, or PSV against Asset Almar, but also like derby games, like Fortuna Sittard against Fefefe Venlo, uh, so that those games can take place in front of a full house. Uh, two reasons. Um, firstly, of course, obviously, these are the big money fixtures, uh, so the clubs want the income, but also van der Sar says it's unfair on the team that plays the home game during the closed stadium period because what we've seen from the German league which we started last month is that home advantage uh, kind of gets wiped out when there aren't 20,000 of your fans kind of baying at the referee throughout the game right so are we going to discover that sporting events are more fair if there aren't fans in the stadium yeah basically yeah Exactly, yeah, and also that you know fans do have a huge influence on how the referees yeah. uh, police police the game, whether they award penalties and, all, and send players off uh, is heavily influenced on the, how the fans react. Apparently, which is kind of interesting. So, are there sports scheduled over the summer, Gordon, or do I get to just like miss the sports thing completely? There aren't any uh, official spectator sports scheduled over the summer, but a council in Amsterdam has suggested that um, people should make their own fun if they're staying at home by going swimming in the river. Uh, Jan Bert Frucher, who is a water spokesman for Days and Sister, wants the council to set up safe swimming spots along the Amstel so that uh, people can stay fit while practicing social distancing. He said having official swimming points uh, within walking or cycling distance from the city centre would prevent the most popular unofficial spots becoming too crowded on warm days. Swimming in canals are still not recommended in most places because of the large numbers of old bicycles <laughs> rusting on the bottom. Oh, that's the even reason. Though the, <laughs> yeah, even though the water quality has improved drastically oh, really? since uh, the start of the corona outbreak. Well, I guess there's fewer boats going around. Yeah, and, interesting. Uh, so, so not polluting I'm not the water. sure what's the most Dutch thing about this, that someone is <laughs> suggesting that you swim in the canal or that a political party has a water spokesperson. I, I, I like that as well. That was a yeah, Only in the Netherlands would you, would you actually have a water spokesman. Yeah. I would have been surprised if we didn't have a water spokesperson. I mean, you guys already have water boards. Like, you gotta have exactly. spokespeople. It's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Before the corona crisis, Mr. Stikstof appeared to be everywhere in Dutch politics, but apparently Johan Remkes used the intelligence lockdown period to write a lengthy report slamming the government's plans to combat nitrogen-based pollution. Remkes, chair of the government's special advisory commission on nitrogen pollution, writes that the plans are not ambitious enough and there is not sufficient evidence that they will allow nature to fully recover. In particular, the government's target of 26% reduction in nitrogen emissions by 2030 does not go far enough. 
The reduction should be at least 50% and more than that should be a hard goal and not a soft target. And furthermore, the idea that the coronavirus crisis had removed the need for action on nitrogen compound pollution is false. And he also added that nature will not recover without concerted action. Buying out farmers uh, who want to stop uh, will not be enough, particularly on livestock farms close to environmentally sensitive areas. The commission also concluded farming must make the biggest effort because it is responsible for 40% of nitrogen emissions in the form of ammonia. So uh, we will expect a lot of farmers to uh, come to the Hague. Uh, um, uh, in, in the near future. Um, the government's plan to encourage farmers to quit led to several large demonstrations last autumn on the Maliveld. Uh, and last year, the Council of State, the highest Dutch administrative court, scrapped the cabinet's policies for nitrogen reduction because it didn't follow EU rules. Since then, the government has stopped many building projects, stopped livestock farms expanding, delayed the opening of Lelystad Airport to commercial airlines, and reduced the speed limit on all roads to 100 kilometers an hour during the day and uh, now it appears that the new plans also do not seem to be uh, nearly enough so yeah we're gonna see a lot of demonstrations i fear more tractors on the Malifelt and more photocalls for uh Thierry Baudet, exactly so, yeah. so the, the things are not going to get better after the coronavirus uh, uh, outbreak is over this didn't come as a great surprise did it i mean it's kind of a, the government have been quite critical of the way the government implemented the plan saying it was all it wasn't thorough enough in particular on um uh, livestock farming it was quite clear they hadn't done enough and that a lot of the measures were a bit tokenistic like reducing the speed limit makes a very small reduction which was just enough to get the construction industry going but didn't tackle the real root of the problem. No, but this, the speed reduction was, was meant as a very short-term solution in order to indeed uh, allow the construction workers to go back to work uh, again. But yeah, he had uh, said, I think on preliminary reports and on other occasions, he already said that this was going to happen. So it does not come as a full surprise. But what I think is that everyone completely forgot about stickstuff during the corona uh, crisis. So yeah, what even is stickstuff? I've completely lost the plot. Yeah, it's uh, it has to do with <laughs> nitrogen-based pollution. So that's uh, oh, right, nitrogen yeah. oxides and ammonia, for example. Those are all chemicals with an N in it, standing for nitrogen or stickstuff in Dutch. It's crazy to think that these insane protests with the farmers were only like, yeah only a couple six of months, months ago. ago? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it feels like a lifetime ago. Like, it feels like I was another person. Yeah. Speaking of things taking a lifetime, <laughs> how's that for a transition, guys? Wow. That was a very good one. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Unfortunately for a library in Grosbeek, Return to Oosthaest has returned. <laughs> you really were practicing. Thank you. I completely missed that the library is located in Grosbeek, which even yes. adds to the... Yes. I practice. Also, I have a friend who lives in Oosthaest, so it was like, okay, I, I was somewhat familiar with the uh, with the name. The Jan Volkers Classic has been checked out for 39 years, 13 weeks, and 5 days. Terug naar Oosthaest, as it is called in Dutch, has been sitting in Joost Ruloff's attic for years among some old school supplies. Ruloff's, who had to track down the library's address, and it has moved three times in the previous 40 years, suspect he had to check it out for a school assignment. You don't check out this book for fun, he said. <laughs> That's a good quote. Yeah. Yep. The book should have been returned on March 5th, 1981. That is before two people on this podcast were even born. The fine for the overdue book would have totaled 1,530 euros and 75 cents, according to library calculations. But fortunately for Ruloffs, the library sets a maximum fine of five euros and he won't even be charged that. The library was just happy to have it back. He had debated throwing it in the bin. 
Do you guys want to know what my be. favorite detail is of this story? Uh, no. Well, I'm going to tell you anyway. Uh, he did not read the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it seems fair. Yeah. Having read one of John Jan Volker's books, I would not recommend reading any of the no, other ones. No, no, That's my advice. I, I agree. I agree. I fully agree that. Although some guy on Twitter did accuse me of wanting to start book burning to start a revolution this week when I was making fun of the opening line to Noitmir Slapa, um, because apparently it's considered one of the best opening lines in Dutch literature. And the opening line is, the porter was disabled. Okay, that is apparently one of the best opening lines in Dutch literature. That's one of the best opening lines in Dutch literature, and I was making fun of it, and some guy accused me of wanting to start a book-burning revolution or something. I think it says a lot about Dutch literature, if that's one of the I best opening lines. I think it says a lines. lot about Dutch literature, yeah. You're both Philistines, but let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> Has anybody read Turuch Norno Oosthaest? I've not read Turuch Norno Oosthaest, no. Uh, Have you I... read Turks of Frout? I've read Turks of Frout, yeah. Yeah. It's re- I hate Turks of Frout. It's kind of up and down, Turks of Frout. It's one of those books that hasn't dated well at all. It seemed no, very no, no, uh, no, no, no. bold and radical at the time he published it, um, yeah. right at the start of the sexual revolution, but now it seems quite badly outdated and misogynistic in a lot of places. Yeah. I don't think it should be burned. I guess that's what I can say about it. <laughs> I mean, it kind of speaks to me because, uh, you know, I'm not going to spoil it for anyone who wants to go and uh, take Turks of Frout out of the library and, and then uh, keep it for 40 years without reading it. But um, <laughs> yeah. what happens to the woman in the... Uh, in, 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 yeah, I guess I could see some... Uh some resemblance it's pretty tragic and and pretty well rendered but yeah although i mean i don't want to talk about your or i don't want to suppose about how your relationship was but i really hope that you did not treat your wife who seemed totally lovely the way that he treats the the female protagonist in this book (laughs) i don't i do not know i don't actually i do not identify the male protagonist in this book because the the guy played by good power in 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 the movie but which Actually, that's the other good thing that led to this book, that delightful scene from the movie where he's cycling in Amsterdam, which is lovely. So there's two positive things I've managed to say about Jan Volkers' works. Which is more than I expected uh, when we started this yeah. uh, It's the ice cream for breakfast. It really, uh, really brings out the, the positivity in me. Uh, <laughs> that's the key. <laughs> well, are there any statues of Jan Volkers anywhere as well? That, that, that might be interesting. No, but they could be yeah. torn down. That's fine. <laughs> I will support... I, if, look, if any protesters are listening and they plan on tearing down a Jan Volker statue, give me a call. I'm happy to help. That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We'll include links to everything we talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. And if you want to help us out, please do subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. And you can also now back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl and earn yourself a free shout-out on the podcast. My thanks to Paul Peters and Molly Quell. I'm Gordon Darroch, and we'll be back next week.